and I've, I've, I've been as open-minded as I possibly can for the past uh, several weeks and, and just really in pursuit of uh, taking us to the throne of God and, and having God give us a posture, an attitude, a spirit, an environment, an atmosphere here where people can come here and truly be born again and begin a brand new life in Jesus. Uh, I want our church to be revived so that we can experience harvest. Can everyone say amen? Well, the Bible gives to us a great conduit through which that can happen. And we've been preaching either uh, explicitly or implicitly on this subject, and it's called repentance. Um, Sunday before last, I preached a, a repentance The content of the message was repentance, but I, I preach to you, has conviction died? And uh, the following Tuesday, there was ladies' prayer meeting, uh, lifted, uh, gathered here. There was a great turnout for that. I was so thankful for everyone that came. Some of our men came. I was incredibly thankful for that. And uh, Nancy Tears was asked to speak that day. Didn't know she was speaking. And uh, she made a statement in her presentation uh, along this line that when the prophets of Baal, when Elijah was challenging them, when they didn't and wouldn't repent, that fire fell out of heaven to prove that God was the God. When she made the statement, I, I've, I've not ever heard or thought of, because people didn't repent, God did something drastic to prove that he is God, but I have to agree with her, in this case it happened. So the thought struck me that if due to their inability and refusal to repent, God let fire come down out of heaven to prove that he was God, if he would do that for people that didn't repent, what would he do for people that did? God spoke to Solomon when Solomon was just overwhelmed with the responsibility of being the new king of Israel. And he said, God, equip me and, you know, you know give me what I need. And God essentially asked him, what do you want? And he said, I want to be wise. I need wisdom. And God said, because you didn't ask for silver and gold and what have you, I'll give you that wisdom. But in the, in the, in the presentation of God making him that promise to endow him with wisdom, he said, and if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, that's repentance, I will heal their land and so on. So the presentation tonight has to do with my message to you Sunday before last, and it's also a prelude to what I would like to preach this coming Sunday. And I'd like to preach to you this coming Sunday, God willing, moving the church away from the world, what I'll be preaching this coming Sunday, Lord willing. After God has been so awesome to exemplify and pour out his mercy, everybody say mercy. After he poured out mercy, after he poured out grace, made that available. My question to you last Wednesday night and is tonight. Because of that and that alone, does that give God the right 
to command or demand that we live a certain or specific lifestyle of his choosing as a result of his incredible, unmerited grace and favor that he has bestowed upon us, having nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. My scripture setting was taken out of Luke chapter 3 and verse 7. And uh, I read verses 7 through 18. And if I can, Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. I'd like to read that tonight quickly. Uh, and some as I go along, there are some things that I will point out to you. You know, with our previous lighting setting, you couldn't we couldn't see that clock on the wall back there because it was a glare from the baptistry window. I sure can't see it now. Sorry. That wasn't a part of the plan, but we'll work with it the best we can. That's a joke. I'm just kidding. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Then he, this is John the Baptist, then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, in my opinion... This is essentially the first time God has spoken to them in 400 years. He didn't compliment them or baby them. I went through all that last week. O generation of vipers who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of your repentance. And I would seriously question how much thought most people have given to this. And if you have thought about it, Have you wondered what he meant in that statement? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So your heritage is doing you no good. Just because you're a Jew, that's doing you no good right now. Now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And people ask him, saying, what shall we do? Everybody say people. The people ask him, what shall we do? He answered and said unto them, he that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came the publicans, everybody say the publicans, to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers, everybody say soldiers, likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he be the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but there's one mightier than I that comes, and the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner. But the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. 
I'm not going to spend any time tonight in review um, from last Wednesday night. Time is, is not going to permit that. But I want to begin tonight the part two of the fruit worthy of repentance. I want to begin tonight by talking to you about the freedom of God's mercy. These words were the seeds of theology that came to full flower, if you will, in Paul's letter to the Romans and also to the church in Galatia. I want to talk about that for just a second. In Romans chapter 4, Paul argues that the reason God promised a blessing to Abraham and justified him by faith before he was circumcised was this. The purpose, and I want you to listen very carefully, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's the Gentile people. And who, uh, and those who have received righteousness reckoned to them, and likewise the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also follow the example of the faith which our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what Paul is saying is that the promise of mercy is being extended to all people, not Jews, not because they were Jewish, but because they were believers. Everybody say believers. Then in Romans chapter 4, later on, Paul says that the promise to Abraham's seed, not Jewish people, but believers, the promise to Abraham's seed depends on their faith, not their bloodline, not their heritage. It depends on their faith in order that it might rest on grace so that the promise might be sure for all the descendants, not only those, Paul said, of the law or believing Jews, but also those who share the faith of Abraham, which would be believing Gentiles, who is father of us all, as it is written, God said, I will make you to Abraham father of not one nation, of one bloodline, but I will make you the father of many nations. Then in Galatians chapter 3, Paul said, So you see, it is men of faith who are sons of Abraham. It's people who believe that are the sons of Abraham. And in verse 29 of that chapter, he said, If you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, if you're a possession of Christ, if you've been bought by the blood of Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. So when John the Baptist was preaching that day to the people, he warned the crowd. He warned the multitude, the publicans, the soldiers. He warned them, don't rely on your Jewishness. And he says to them, God can take a stone, literally a stone, and raise up somebody that believes in God if you choose not to. In addition to that, if God chooses to, he can fulfill his promise in that stone made into a believer and still not break his promise. 
I want you to understand tonight, you may be unsure of where I'm going with this, but I hope you'll understand better by and by. What God is saying is I'm not going to give anyone a market on me. I'm not going to let anybody completely control who I want to minister to, who I want to help, who I want to heal, who I want to save. That is not what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to limit myself to one bloodline of people. The Jews were persuaded around the time of the birth of Christ. Of course, they hadn't heard from God in a long time either. But they were persuaded. We have the market on God. God is only about us. All these heathen Gentile people everywhere, God ain't interested in them. They're heathens. He's interested in us. And John came to, to, to set the record straight. He wanted them to understand, and Jesus reiterated in John 3, that when Jesus came to this planet, he went global first of all. He blew out the borders of Israel and said, I'm going around the world with my gospel, and it is for anyone who believes. Everybody say amen. That's not real hard theology, but you've got to understand where he's going with it. So he said in Galatians, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. And John said that he can make stones into people and honor his promise to them. So being Jewish is no guarantee that you're going to get anything from God. But not being Jewish is not a hindrance either. The point is, is that you believe. I want everybody to understand here tonight. The way to forgiveness of sin, the pathway to obtain forgiveness of sins is open to everyone. Everybody say everybody. It's open to everybody. To Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. By the same road, the road of repentance, any man, any woman, no matter who you are, what your background's been like, you can come to God and obtain forgiveness of sin through the mercy of God. It's open to everyone. This means anybody who turns from trusting in human distinctives and hopes in the free mercy of God alone will be saved from the impending wrath through the forgiveness of their sin. So I'm just going to say here in passing, when we rely on our family history, and I'm going to talk to the older seasoned Pentecostals here tonight. Sometimes we think we have a little bit of a market on God because we believe a little bit more and we do a little bit more and we give a little bit more and what have you. Let me tell you the fallacy of that mentality. And this is, this is what I'm trying to break through. This is kind of my point tonight, if you will. When we rely on our family heritage, I'm fourth generation Pentecostal and I'm third generation Pentecostal. We, we kind of have a history like the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. And somehow we feel like we get the ability to claim a relationship with God without the need to personally come to a moment of repentance. You say, Pastor, why are you talking about these things tonight? Is it relevant? Yes, it is. Because I believe when the pastor gets in the pulpit and preaches what is obviously a God-given message and calls people to a time of repentance and half the crowd opts to sit in the chair and do nothing, then this needs to be talked about. Nobody reaches a point 
Nobody reaches a point where God owes you anything. All of us still must come to God through the avenue and the conduit of repentance. God didn't say to Solomon, if the heathens will humble themselves and pray. He didn't say that. He said, if my people forget your heritage, forget what you've done, forget about what you've given, forget about all of that, and just throw yourself on the mercy of God anew and afresh like you did however many years ago when you received the Holy Ghost for the first time and say, God, make me all over again. I want to be brand new. I want to be brand new in my attitude and my perspective and everything about me. When a person comes to God based on who I am, what I've done, and who I've given. Look, I want to be honest here. I talked to somebody on the phone the other day, and they said, how's the church going? I said, it's going great. And uh, what's y'all's attendance like? And I told him. He said, well, you've earned it. You deserve it. I haven't earned anything. I don't deserve anything. I appreciate the comment, and I understand what it means. But my heart says I haven't done anything. There's a city here now that we're our church is in of some 30,000, 35,000 people, and we don't even have 1% of them out here. I haven't done anything. So when we come to God with this idea that I'm somebody and I've given and I've served and what have you, it creates a feeling of pride rather than humility. And it's humility that should characterize our relationship with God. I've heard people say, oh, my dad furnished the money to do so-and-so, and man, my mother was ladies auxiliary leader for 48 years. And, you know, it, it kind of gives us a, a spirit of entitlement when we, we see a similar situation when people try to claim a closeness to God that is not based on grace. We're not going to get close to God without the grace of God. It doesn't matter what we do. I don't know if I'm communicating here tonight or not. I, I don't feel like I am, but I still need the grace of God. Um, I got a little certificate in the mail uh, a number of months ago that congratulating on me on being licensed for 25 years with the United Pentecostal Church. I appreciate it, but that's not giving me any clout with God. When we come to God based on what we did, we come in pride. But when we come to God based on what he did, we come in humility. And God said, if my people who were called by my name will humble themselves. Well, if you come humble, you're coming based on his grace, not based on who we are. And I'm not trying to belabor the point. I just want you to get it. The person who believes that their work for the church or their Sunday morning attendance or their financial gift is what is maintaining the link to God in their life, they're being led by pride and good works. And the Bible is not based on that. We all come to him naked, wretched, lost and still need the grace and the mercy of God. When we begin at the point of repentance, bowing and admitting 
that we cannot earn our way into heaven, acknowledging our sin and questionable motives, speaking out our need for Jesus' blood, asking for God to forgive us. There is a humility that comes into our hearts that cannot come any other way. We are sinners, and yet God has forgiven us anyway. This is a humbling place to be because you have received what you did not deserve. The flip side of that is you did not receive what you did deserve. I thank God for his mercy. I thank God for his mercy. So what fruits befit repentance? Evidently, John's preaching gets through these people. And they start repenting, turning afresh to God's mercy rather than leaning on their own works or even their own race or bloodline. Now the question arises: how such people should live. I want to preach and teach my heart out tonight. The question is, is when you come to God and you come to him on the basis of his mercy, you didn't get what you deserved. He gave you what you didn't deserve. So when you come to God that way, then what should be our posture? How should we act? How should we live after that moment? This is where, and y'all can blame everybody of this on Nancy Tears, where it all came from. But when you say, God don't have the right to tell me how to live, The Bible don't have a right to tell me how to live. When you say that, you're not manifesting one ounce, one iota of thankfulness for the mercy God gave to you when he saved you to start with. Are y'all getting that point? To him that is forgiven much, loves much. It's the fruit worthy of of repentance. It's the fruit. It's what you do after you've been forgiven. It's, I've been forgiven a lot, so I'm going to live like it. God has bestowed a lot of mercy on me, so I'm going to act like it. Everybody with me? Okay. So John said in his presentation that there is a distinctive lifestyle that grows out of a person as a result of mercy alone. Forget anything the Bible says. Forget doctrine. Forget lifestyle stuff. Forget holiness. Out of mercy alone, just because we were a recipient of mercy, when God could have called fire out of heaven and consumed us all, he didn't do it. He said, I want to be merciful on those who are not worthy of it. And what I'm going to hope for is when I bestow my mercy, my unmerited favor on them, that they're going to be so appreciative of the fact that I was merciful to their sinful, damnable plight that I will ask them to live a certain way to properly represent the mercy that I bestowed upon them, and I think that's fair. 
So he poured it on me, and John let him have it. <clears throat> the multitudes were stirred up by that. The multitude. Everybody say the multitude. They asked him then, what do we need to do? If you want us to bring fruit worthy of repentance, if God is going to bestow his great mercy on us and not consume us and send us straight to hell, then what should we do? I want you to hear John's answer. He said, those of you that have two coats, there's a principle he's stating here. Those of you that have plenty, share with the people that don't have that much. I'm not going to say everything I want to say here tonight because I want to be kind and I want to be taken as being kind. But I just want to say here in passing real easy like, we've become very selfish people. There are so many things we could do to help people. And we just don't. Well, you know, if I give that person $20 and they're going to expect $20 every month out of me. Well, learn to handle it. Learn to tell the person when they come back for another $20, I don't have it this time or I'm not going to give it to you this time. But there are times when we can help people that we don't. And this is what I'm preaching tonight. If you are truly thankful for the mercy of God, there is never too much that God can ask you to do to show your thanksgiving for him. That's what John was saying. The tax collectors came. They wanted to be baptized and said, Teacher, what shall we do? These are tax collectors. Let me tell you about tax collectors. That's why I've asked you to repeat these words. The multitude came, just general, generic Jewish people, if you will. But then John said, or, or Luke rather said, that tax collectors came. Who were tax collectors? They were Jewish people that worked for the Roman government and the Jews hated them. I want to tell you folks here tonight, there are classes of people, there's even races of people that if they started attending this church, you would hate them. You would hate, not maybe hate them, but you would hate them being here. Bottom line I've heard people say it in the past two years. I've heard it said and they told me they said it. I told such and such a family, you can't come here. This is my church. I was here first. We don't do that at Grace. Everybody's welcome to come. As a matter of fact, if that's your attitude, I'd prefer you be the one that leaves and let the new family come and see what kind of attitude they've got. I'm trying to be nice here tonight. The Jews hated tax collectors. They were worse than our IRS people. At least IRS people are American citizens working for the American United States government. These are Jewish people. They're turncoats. They, they betrayed the loyalty of the Jewish creed. They're working for the Roman government. Top of that, when their poor Jewish people come to pay taxes to Caesar, the tax collector takes their money and ships it off to Caesar and collects a little bit for himself. They hated those people. They were dishonest. They were corrupted. But they came. And they came to John and said, what should we do? And they said, collect no more. John said, collect no more than is appointed to you. 
Don't take more from them than what they owe. Quit stealing. The soldiers came. Everybody say soldiers. It's getting worse, man. At first, John started out with just Jewish people, just good old home folks, people at grace. But then comes this idiot, this guy that we don't like, we're uncomfortable with him because of his lifestyle, the kind of job he or she does, and because of the way they live, and they're sinners, and they're horrible, Brother Murphy. I mean, we can't have them here, you know. If Brother X, Brother so-and-so, whatever, starts coming to church here, you know, it's, it's going to mess up our little environment, and grace ain't going to be a good place anymore. I find it interesting that those tax collectors was listening to John preach to start with. They didn't come to get a pat on their back. I'm sure they were living under a huge load of condemnation. And they came to him and said, we want to be baptized, but how can we, how can we show, God help me tonight. What they were asking is how can we show our gratitude for the mercy of God? And John said, just quit stealing from your fellow man. Then the soldiers came. Oh, boy. You just think the Jews hated tax collectors. But these are Roman soldiers. They're heathens. They're Gentiles. And they don't care about Jewish people. They abuse Jewish people. When Jesus made the statement in the Sermon on the Mount, if someone comes to you and asks ask you to carry their stuff, one mile, go with them two miles. He was talking about the times when these Roman soldiers would come and mock the Jews, pull a man off of his job, what he was doing, pull him away from his family, and force him to carry all of his military gear, which for Roman soldiers back in those days was between 100 and 120 pounds. And he would make him carry it wherever he wanted him to carry it. He didn't have to do that. He was just doing it because he had the authority to do it. He was being mean-spirited. And Jesus said, when they come and ask you to do that, however far they want you to carry it, when you get there, tell them, no, I'll go some more. Boy, that goes against the grain. We don't think that way. We're not going to do that. But the soldiers was there that day and heard John preach. And he, they said, what shall we do? And he said, don't rob anyone by, by violence or by false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, just be normal, be honest, be real and what have you. Because of his preaching, they literally thought he was the Messiah and he cleared it up and he said, no, there's one coming after me. I'm not worthy to un unbuckle his sandals. But when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. I want to make a statement here tonight. We've been taught in all of our life, and I, I suppose it's okay, how thankful we ought to be for the infilling of the Holy Ghost. But we've said it with kind of a bent, that we ought to be thankful that we have the Holy Ghost because there's so many poor people out there that don't. And we kind of say it with just a little bit of arrogance and pride. John wasn't talking about them being grateful in their lifestyle and the fruit of their lifestyle because they had been filled with the Holy Ghost. That wasn't even in existence yet. He was asking them, just get all pumped up and excited and, and be great people just because you have the privilege to repent. The Bible said with many other exhortations, he preached good news to people. He preached the gospel. Everybody say the gospel. 
Well, you know what happened. John got real aggressive with Herod, and Herod put him in prison, and he was ultimately executed. But John came preaching good news. He preached what worked. He preached what would change people. He preached what the change in people would do to impact the world. He preached the gospel. The Bible said in verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Let me share with you in the remaining part of this presentation what John knew about good news. It's good news when you're spending the night in a motel room and someone starts beating on your door and says, quick, the hotel is on fire, but there's still time to get out and I'll show you how to get out. That's good news. Would you all agree with that? It's pretty good news. And what tremendously good news it is that the way to be forgiven our sin and to escape God's wrath is through repentance and receive forgiveness because of his mercy and grace. What terrible news is, what bad news is, is if John had came to preach to them that day and said, I'm sorry, folks, all of you soldiers that are here today, I dismiss you because only Jews can be saved but not Gentiles. Or if he had preached only well-to-do people can be saved but not poor people. Or what if he would have said that only people of a certain race can be saved? Or he could have said you can be saved if on judgment day, after your good works, after all your good works are weighed, they outweigh your bad works. That would have been bad news. But John came to preach good news. And that good news is, through the conduit of repentance, you can escape the wrath and judgment of God. John said the way is open for all flesh to have the salvation of God because no human characteristic, good or bad whatsoever, is a precondition for God's mercy. His mercy runs ahead of all of our efforts and seizes us before we know it. And the good news is repent and the mercy and grace of God will be bestowed upon you. And notice that it is good news to be exhorted to live a certain way. It's good news. If someone comes to your motel room and says it's on fire and you need to get out and they run off and you don't know how to get out, what good do they do you? But if they ask you or tell you that I know the way out, follow me, are you going to question the way they take you as long as it gets you out of the burning motel? Think about that. We're trying to lead people from here to heaven so you can escape incredible, horrible wrath that's coming to this planet more sooner than later and to save people from a burning, unquenchable fire of hell. And people question the method. They question the requirements. I don't understand. John introduced the message of repentance and it was built on this platform that you should be so grateful 
for the escape route that God has given to you. But you can do it not only because the Bible teaches it, but because you're thankful. Has anybody, this is not my notes, but has anybody ever had a near-death experience and someone saved you? If you have legitimately, would you raise your hand? A couple, good tonight. I was attempting years ago to water ski. My aunt and uncle, we were in their boat, and he was in the water with me to teach me how to water ski. I had... I was married, and both of our kids was born. And there was a man driving the boat, another pastor friend, driving the boat, and he had never pulled a skier before. But we were going to try it. <clears throat> well, I got set, and they motioned for the boat to go, and he went, and I got up for a few minutes and went under the water. And as I let go of the rope, I guess things flying or whatever, it twisted around my arm and pulled me under the water, and the man in driving the boat, he didn't completely stop the boat. It was going just fast enough that I couldn't get my bearings, I, I couldn't get back up to the top of the water, and I had that experience that people say you have when you're near death. I saw a perfect picture, a photograph, if you will, of Sister Murphy and Marcus and Casey, and I knew it was over, and Sister Murphy was in the boat. She was screaming for the driver to stop the boat, and he thought the whole thing was funny. He, he thought I was playing or whatever. And um, so eventually, obviously, he stopped the boat, and I didn't drown. And needless to say, I was feeling very desperate and, and upset and what have you. And when they came and got me, it didn't matter who pulled me out of the water. And it didn't matter to me how they did it. Just so long as you get me where I can breathe. That's all I ask is get me where I can breathe. And I was, actually it was, Sister Murphy was a big part of that. Uh, pulling my arm for everything she had to get me up above the water. It hurt. My shoulder hurt for two or three days after that. But I didn't complain. I would take the pain in my shoulder over being laid out in a casket in a funeral home. Y'all got me? I want us to understand tonight, the Bible teaches very clearly that if God, just as a result of repentance, John didn't include baptism. He mentioned the Holy Ghost that was coming later, but that was not his platform. Listen to me, people. I'm talking to Grace tonight. That God intends for us to be so thankful for forgiveness that we will literally be willing to do anything in return. You never come to God because of what I've done, what I've given, because I'm thankful. I keep going back to Brother Huntley's message, and, and I, I regret to do it, but I can't get it off of my mind of, why some Pentecostal kids won't be saved. And I think maybe it's because parents sometimes are not real grateful. They're not real thankful. To our parents here tonight with young children still at home, every moment you can express your gratitude and your thankfulness to God for all 
that he has done and do that, live that in front of your children. Don't talk to them about the love of God and then live your life like it never happened. Don't talk to them about how great forgiveness is, but you never show it, you never manifest your appreciation of it. Don't give them some long Bible study on what repentance is, but they never see you ever practicing that. The fruit of repentance is a lifestyle after it happens. That's the fruit of repentance. It's fruit worthy of repentance. It makes God feel like what he did for us was worth it when we manifest the right attitude towards what he's provided. John said in his epistle, and hereby do we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I mentioned to you, and I'm closing, John or, or Luke, excuse me, specifically pointed out people or multitudes, the Jewish people, tax collectors, and soldiers. In verse 8, John said, to bear fruits that befit repentance, that's worthy of repentance. And in verse 10, the crowds asked, what then shall we do? That is, what are the fruits that befit or show that one has genuinely repented and is thankful for? We need to keep clear as we look at these exhortations to the multitudes, the tax collectors, and the soldiers, that John is giving examples of fruits that show that repentance has happened. That is, he is showing the kind of fruit or lifestyle that inevitably grows on a tree of repentance. Genuine repentance is of the nature that it produces these sorts of attitudes and actions. And keep in mind, what repentance is. It's a turning from reliance on human traits and works to a reliance on God's mercy for our security, our joy, and our hope. So first notice the three groups which Luke refers to, the multitudes in verse 10, the tax collectors in verse 12, and the soldiers in verse 14. Why not mention fishermen? Don't you think there were some fishermen there that day? What about some carpenters? What about lawyers? These people are mentioned frequently throughout the Gospels. But in this case, they were not mentioned. Only multitudes, tax collectors, and soldiers. Because surely, surely in that multitude, there was other professions that was represented. I think of two things Luke was doing by choosing these particular groups. First, he knew that these three groups of people were hostile towards each other. And I've pointed that out. The multitudes were ordinary Jewish people for the most part, but the tax collectors were viewed as greedy Jewish turncoats who used their already despised relationship with Rome to line their own pockets. And the soldiers, no doubt Gentile people, but in any case they represented the pagan Roman overlords. Here they all are, and they're all asking the same question what shall we do? They're all now on the same ground. They're all professing the same need. Doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we've done. We're here in need of the mercy of God. When a person turns to rely on God's mercy, when a person turns 
to rely on the mercy of God. He can no longer hate his neighbor. It is impossible on the one hand to cherish the mercy of God as shown to us and at the same time refuse to show it to someone else. Therefore, one of the fruits of, that befits and is worthy of repentance is a church that is unified. A church that we're all standing on the same ground of just ordinary people, tax collectors, and pagans. We're all here tonight for one common reason. We're still in need of the mercy of God. And this is my, my ultimate point tonight. I believe tonight at Grace we've kind of lost that feeling. Do we kind of feel like I've done a lot of good stuff, Pastor? And I remind God of it all the time. I remind God of what I do and what I give and how much I sacrifice. And it comes, we come with a slight degree of arrogance and pride. And we want to show God who we are. And we want to showcase to God our talent and our ability and all of those things. When God says, you're nothing more than a that was headed for an eternal hell, if you will, but because I was merciful, I have spared you of that fate, and I believe tonight that I have the right because of it to ask you to manifest some gratitude. And if I bestow my mercy on you, then it is only fair to ask you to bestow it on someone else. True repentance penetrates the battlements. It separates classes of people. Repentance penetrates the battlements that separate races of people. Repentance penetrates the battlements that separates cliques. Therefore, the church of all institutions should be free of cliques of people who are uninviting to outsiders. Mary, being Mary, makes for Mary mingling. It don't matter who the other rejoicer is. So I just kind of have a mental image in my mind that when John the Baptist baptized a sufficient number of those people, I can just see. Some old Jewish guy, he is so thankful for the mercy of God that's been bestowed upon him, man. He just gets arm in arm with that old tax collector that just robbed him of a lot of his pay yesterday. And they're just going to town, boy, just, just having a ball. And Come on, old Roman soldier. A few minutes ago, I hated your guts. But now that I have become a recipient of the mercy of God, I can't hate you no more. Because I realized that I am no more righteous than you and no more sinful than you. That when we come to the cross, we're all sinners. You'll stand with me tonight. The other thing Luke does by referring to tax collectors and soldiers and people. 
is to get in the man's ear that he was writing to. His name was Theophilus. Theophilus to whom Luke's gospel was written to. We don't know who he is. Could have been a, a contemporary, another doctor. He could have been a powerful soldier, a, a ranking soldier in the Roman army. Who knows who Theophilus was? But Luke seems intent and to be intent, and it's what I'm trying to do tonight, on keeping the dangers of power and wealth before Theophilus. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had said, for example, God's mercy is on them that fear him. He has put down the powerful from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And now Luke describes what John has to say to the rich tax collectors and the powerful soldiers. Now he has Theophilus' attention. So what does change when a tax collector and a soldier stops relying on money and power and prestige and they begin to rely on the mercy of God for forgiveness and for the hope of their future? If we really and truly trust in God's mercy to save us and help us at all times, then we will always put a high value on mercy. We will cherish it. And if you truly love mercy, according to Micah chapter 6 verse 8, then you will live mercy. So tonight, we have a world around us that's lost without God. I'll never forget, I don't suppose, what I felt that day walking around in Belfast, Ireland. People used to fight over religious differences, but now it's just become, become political. And our tour guide said kids are fighting now, and they don't even know why. And I couldn't help but think in Pentecostal ranks, our kids have an attitude and a bent towards Pentecost, towards God, towards the cross, towards mercy, towards the shed blood of Christ. They have a bent towards the world and sin and all that kind of stuff that's, that's convoluted to them. They don't see it. Could it be? Because we've not lived it in front of them. We've not been the example. Paul said in short, to rejoice with them that rejoice. we can't rejoice with our fellow man then we're not thankful for the mercy of God I don't care who they are Brother Murphy you don't know how bad people have hurt me in Birmingham man we've been down that road so many times but somehow the cross is a great equalizer that when we all come to the cross we're all on the same plane realize that without the mercy of God none of us would be here so I'm going to ask Grace and in a way I'm going to be preaching about it Sunday morning has the church moved away from the world we've got a job to do and somebody has to do it and I think the most qualified are those who have been the recipients of the mercy of God it doesn't mean you're perfect it just means you're faithful means you have a heart of gratitude and you're thankful. I'm going to ask Chris, and he's not prepared to do this, but he'll, he'll do it, have confidence. But to put the, the prayer music playing, Chris,
I think one of those songs is here in his presence, time undone, et cetera, et cetera. He'll play that in just a minute. I know it's a little bit late, but can I have five minutes? Would you folks just come? If you need to go, feel free to go ahead and go. I know some of you get up real early, but if you would, let's just gather around the front for a few minutes, and can we just express our gratitude? If you're thankful, if you're thankful, would you come for a few minutes and just express your gratitude? If you'll throw your hands up heavenward, and let's just thank the Lord for His mercy. And God, starting today, I'm going to live like it. This is a song I was talking about. Our praise team sings it. Here in His presence, I am undone. I don't, I don't have anything to bring you, God, but, but a broken life full of sin. and just I'm human. I come tonight to let you know I'm thankful for your mercy. I'm thankful for your mercy. Would y'all just take a few moments and let's pray tonight. Let's everybody pray. I need your help right now. Let's pray. Everybody pray in Jesus' name.
you, let's be thankful tonight, folks, all across the front of this building. Somebody be thankful. God, I'm just thankful for your mercy. God, I'm thankful for your mercy. And God, because you've been merciful to me, I'm going to be merciful to someone else. Everybody pray. Everybody pray. Everybody pray. Hallelujah to God. Everybody pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.